You are listening to Best Life After Cancer, episode number 26. Welcome to Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where cancer survivors and caregivers can get solutions and support to overcome the life challenges brought by their cancer diagnosis. If you are ready to release your fear, regain your joy, and reduce your risk, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Butzbach. This week, I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Arnie Baskies. Dr. Baskies was a dedicated breast surgeon that I had the opportunity to work with for a while. He also was the chairman of the board of the American Cancer Society. He knew about every new development that was coming down the road and was so knowledgeable. I'm so excited for you to be able to tap into a bit of his wisdom today. Enjoy. Good morning and uh, good afternoon is it whenever you're watching this podcast. Uh, uh, first of all, whenever I get introduced that way, uh, it reminds me that behind every successful man is an amazed mother-in-law. So <laughs> thanks for that introduction, Deb. Um, it's, all, it's been a pleasure to work with you over the years also. For those of you who don't know, uh, Deb is a, a very, very well-trained and and very sensitive radiation oncologist. And uh, uh, collaborating with her has been one of the pleasures of the latter part of my career. In terms of my background, I'm a surgical oncologist. I trained at the National Cancer Institute um, and I had my surgical residency at, at in Boston. I did my uh, uh, cancer fellowship with Steve Rosenberg, who is the father of adoptive immunotherapy. I was very involved and I've been involved with immunotherapy uh, off and on throughout my career of 48 years. And I've been very involved with the American Cancer Society. I helped to develop the current breast cancer screening guidelines that are in in place today. I was chairman of the National Board of Directors of the American Cancer Society, uh, which was one of the true distinctive pleasures of my professional and personal career. I have an abiding interest in breast cancer for a whole bunch of reasons, and that's what we're going to discuss this morning. Let me begin by talking a little bit about the evolution of breast cancer treatment, because although it's it's a common disease, a lot of people don't know that it's become a very treatable and curable disease, especially over the last 25 years. Breast cancer in the 1800s and going into the 1900s was an untreatable disease. In fact, a lot about what we know about breast cancer in general comes from uh, England, where there were logs kept of women who had untreatable breast cancer. And so we know about how women survived with breast cancer that wasn't treated. The treatment of breast cancer really went through a big change in the 1920s when William Halstead, who was the chief of surgery at Johns Hopkins and invented the residency training system, by the way, in the United States. Halstead had a very, very interesting career, but one of the places where he made his biggest mark was in the treatment of breast cancer. And he invented an operation for breast cancer called the radical mastectomy. And the radical mastectomy was really the only way that you could treat breast cancer when it was discovered and diagnosed in the early 19. And right through until 1960s, the only treatment for breast cancer in the world was based on Halstead's radical mastectomy, and that was how it was done. In fact, when I moved to southern New Jersey from Boston in 1982, so lumpectomy wasn't really common in the metropolitan areas around cities until really the late 70s. I think I was the first person in Burlington County to do a lumpectomy for breast cancer. 
things changed drastically and, and, and radically, if you will, because we went from doing radical operations to what became the standard of care for small breast cancers, which was lumpectomy. But it went through a lot of changes along the way. And that's one of the interesting things about breast cancer. Let me give you some statistics that are really interesting. In 1975, when I began my residency, the survival rate for breast cancer in the United States was 75%. In other words, 25% of women died from breast cancer, even small ones. But to take the whole group of women, the overall survival was 75%. Now fast forward to 2020, and the overall survival of breast cancer is well over 90%. And those changes didn't happen by accident. And uh, a lot of the changes that we're seeing and a lot of the improvements aren't necessarily surgical. The evolution of breast cancer is really a poster child, if you will, for how the different types of treatments of cancer work together. And by that, I mean not just surgery, but radiation and chemotherapy and targeted therapies, which we're going to talk a lot about. So breast cancer treatment has really, really evolved and it's evolved very quickly, and it's evolved because of the investments that have been made in research and the work that's been done behind the scenes, if you will, by pharma and by uh, multi-center multi clinical trials, which have made a big contribution. In terms of where we are now, it's a very interesting time. I've watched the evolution of breast cancer go from radical mastectomy to modified radical mastectomy to lumpectomy. This is just the surgery. And now women are requesting bilateral mastectomies. So <laughs> it's, it's an interesting evolution and something that I watched happen over time. But as I said, when in the 1970s, the most common operation done to treat a breast cancer, regardless of size, was to remove the entire breast. And then a couple of things happened. George Kreil at the Cleveland Clinic in the 70s said, I don't think I need to remove the whole breast for breast cancer. I think I can just remove the cancer, and, and that's what he did. And he was seeing survival rates in the 70s. And then a guy by the name of Bernie Fisher came along, and Bernie Fisher was a surgeon at the University of Pittsburgh, and he said, I think what we should do is a trial looking at whether or not we can do something other than a radical mastectomy. And so he did a trial that looked at lumpectomy and radiation versus modified radical mastectomy. And lo and behold, the, the survival rates for the women that had the lesser operation, in other words, the, the lumpectomy and radiation, their survival rates were at least as good as, but actually a little bit better than the women that had their entire breast removed. And so lumpectomy and radiation came into fashion. But then something else happened, and that something else was uh, relatively recent, and that's the Angelina Jolie effect. And many of you may be familiar with Angelina Jolie. She's a talented actress, but she also harbors a genetic abnormality called BRCA mutation. And she had a high risk of developing not only breast cancer, but ovarian cancer. And what she actually instituted was to have both breasts removed, which made sense for her in order to reduce her risk of developing breast cancer. Well, that became a phenomenon. And what many women began to say is, if I have breast cancer, I'm, I agree with Angelina Jolie. I want to have both of my breasts removed. I don't want to worry about the opposite side. And for a whole bunch of reasons, the pendulum has swung from doing less surgery, if you will, to doing major surgery by having bilateral mastectomies 
with reconstruction. And so there is a, a very reasonable and I think understandable movement to going from less surgery to more surgery, but it's really in a prophylactic setting that that's being done. The other thing that's happened is based on scientific observation, and that's to do less surgery in the axilla or the armpit with what a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And that's based really on the lymphatic circulation of the breast. In other words, one of the ways that cancer cells can spread from the primary cancer to other parts of the body is through the lymphatic system. And these are very small vessels that are contained in the breast tissue and in the skin and subcutaneous tissues. And the cancer cells can make their way into these little tiny microscopic channels and then get filtered, if you will, by the lymph nodes. The most common operation that was done as part of breast cancer was to remove all the lymph nodes from the axilla. And it turns out that was the oftentimes one of the most troublesome parts of having breast cancer treatment. Because once you remove the glands that are located in the axilla or the armpit, there can be a tendency for, the, for that arm to get swollen. And in addition to that, it's a little bit more painful than even having the breast surgery done. So there was an observation made that you could actually identify an early draining lymph node that would actually tell you pretty accurately whether the other nodes were involved. So let's say the average axilla has between 15 and 25 lymph glands in it. What the sentinel node biopsy does is it removes the early draining lymph node. In other words, theoretically the first node that can get affected by cancer. And that can then tell you as a sentinel or as a guide whether or not the other nodes are involved. And that's become actually the standard of care in the United States. So we can now make a small incision in the axilla and identify radio-guided or radio-sensitivity techniques where that lymph node resides and remove only one or two or three that are radioactive. And that makes a big difference. So what we've seen is more breast surgery and less armpit surgery. So it's a very interesting time. The other changes that have occurred, of course, involve Dr. Buttsback's specialty, which is radiation therapy. And the techniques that are done have added to the safety and to less in terms of less morbidity from radiation therapy. So that's made a big difference. And the techniques that are used, how much radiation therapy is delivered, and the types of radiation therapy that are delivered have made big differences in terms of reducing the risk of radiation therapy. So you can actually guide that radiation therapy beam, if you will, more accurately than we ever could before. Um, I think it's so interesting during COVID, one of the things that we've seen is some real acceleration in the adoption of some of the techniques using shorter treatment times, smaller fields, things that probably would have taken another 10 years to really come to being standard of care because of the population with the women in their 70s and their risk from COVID. We really have adopted some of the things that have been used in Europe and other places much more quickly in the U.S. over the last six months than would have been otherwise. And it's really amazing to realize that now there's a group of people that are getting partial breast radiation with five treatments given every other day, and that's it. It's amazing times. And so when people say that COVID has brought nothing good to us, I actually challenge them to look at 
the ways that we've learned how to deal with things in medicine and some of the ways that we as a society have learned to interact with each other. There's lots of good that came out of COVID. Absolutely. There, there, are, there are some good things. And you know, Deb, it reminds me, surgically, some of the biggest advances that have been made in surgery uh, in terms of like emergency care, in terms of trauma care, have evolved from wars. And For sure. so there have been many books and many studies done that showed that the way we transport patients, the way we treat patients, the, uh, the efficiency of treatment and the, the types of treatment that we do emanate from wars. Uh, and that's kind of what we're in now. So your point is very well taken. From a radiation therapy point of view, I, I, I always say sometimes we used to think that more is better. And in, in, in terms of mastectomies, some people think that that's the case. Some, less is sometimes better than more. For sure. And, and in this case, uh, you're right. And in a um, pandemic, less is definitely more if it means less exposure to the public and less time out in a situation where you could be exposed to a virus. I'm, you know, I'm really happy with seeing how things have gone in terms of us working to maintain our patients' safety, not just from their cancer, but from the virus as well. Absolutely. One of the things that I think we also need to talk about is uh, targeted therapies. And you hinted at that at the very beginning. And this has been a huge evolutionary change in breast cancer. When I was a resident, and though I don't want to sound like I was in the dark ages of medicine, <laughs> but in many, ways, in many ways it was. The 1970s was a very interesting time because we saw, we didn't have much in the way of, of being able to treat patients. We had, a, we had tamoxifen, we had um, some other medications. One of the ways we manipulated patients' hormonal status was actually to remove the ovaries, which is still done in some cases today. But we didn't have really many medicines uh, that would could do the same thing. So oophorectomies were very common. And when we ran out of options in terms of treating a patient with metastatic disease, disease that had spread to the bones, for instance, we were oftentimes doing adrenalectomies on patients. And so having watched what those patients had to go through, I'm ever more grateful for the science that is behind all of this. And so hormone receptor status and what we call human epidermal growth factor receptors, what's commonly referred to as HER2 uh, expression over or overexpression are very important determinants of the likelihood of response to therapy and for estimating prognosis. And so when a, a breast cancer is removed, the laboratories measure things called hormone receptors, as you know, estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors, and HER2 new receptors. And endocrine therapy, in other words, we can block or control to a large degree whether or not the cancer will relapse and how those patients will do if they have their cancer that's present, even in a metastatic form, is based on whether or not hormone receptor status is positive or negative. And so that's, be, that's been a very big change. But the other thing that is very interesting is we've also identified other me mechanistic targets. We understand better how breast cancer cells uh, divide and how they proliferate or how they increase in number. And so we now have ways to control those types of mechanisms by using what's called CDK inhibitors and uh, PI3K inhibitors, uh, which are newer drugs, if you will, 
and especially helpful in terms of treating patients who even have metastatic disease. So we can now take breast cancer, which was uniformly fatal, not maybe cure that, but we can control it to a larger degree. And if you will, create breast cancer that was life-threatening into a chronic disease situation. So scientifically, we're able to not only control local disease and regional disease surgically and with radiation, but we can also control to some extent and getting better every day, metastatic disease. And so metastatic breast cancer is almost like a separate specialty now. And when we, when we send patients to our medical oncology colleagues, they oftentimes can control those disease processes much better than we ever could before. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing improvements in numbers of survivors and increases in the amount of time that they survive with meaningful and beneficial lifestyles. But the really big change in breast cancer, if we want to look at it from 30,000 feet, is really involved with what was the genome-wide study that was begun in the 1990s. The federal government invested $5 billion in cracking the genetic code. And that was a game changer, not just for, for other diseases, but really uh, for breast cancer. And the reason that it is, is that um, we now can firmly sequence the human genome and we understand better the genes that control the breast cancer. Believe it or not, it wasn't the number of lymph nodes that were involved that determined prognosis. And it wasn't the size of the cancer that determined the prognosis. What determined the prognosis was the genetic signature of the individual breast cancer. And that was a game changer. And it's such a game changer that about a million women in the United States, probably over a million women, have had their breast cancers sequenced in order to determine what the best treatment is and what uh, the prognosis is for those patients. And that's been a huge game changer to the point where it's now part, the genetic signature of the breast cancer is part of the way we stage the cancer. So that's a, that has made a huge difference. And it's yeah. made a difference in terms of the treatments that we uh, administer. So one treatment doesn't fit all. We really can personalize breast cancer treatment to the point where we can determine what the prognosis is and what the best treatment is. Should this patient get chemotherapy or should she not get chemotherapy? Should this patient get endocrine therapy or should she not get endocrine therapy? And that's become an everyday occurrence. But I'll tell you something, when that test became commercially available, I think it was about 2003, I was watching this science evolve. Can you tell people a couple of the names of that? Because there's lots of breast cancer people listening to this. So I know one is Oncotype. The two most common ones, and I don't mean to disparage any of the other ones, but the two most common are Oncotype DX and Mammoprint. Right. Those are the two most common ones. One of them looks at 21 genes that are in the breast cancer. The other one looks at 70 odd genes that are in the breast cancer. And uh, they give you slightly different pieces of information. One of them does a genetic subtyping of the breast cancer so you can actually subclassify it. And it became readily apparent that breast cancer isn't one disease. It's actually sure. a heterogeneous group of diseases that can act differently based on the genetic signature of those breast cancers. I always was of the mind that it wasn't the, the surgery that I did that cured a patient. It was whether or not biologically how her immune system reacted to the presence of the breast cancer. 
And that was based on the, the research that we had done in the 1970s when I was at the NCI. I had seen women with small breast cancers do poorly, and I had seen women with large breast cancers do well. And so there had to be more to it than just the size of the breast cancer, or even when we discovered it. It had to be something else, and it had to be something in that person's immune system that allowed them to survive their cancer and oftentimes be cured or have long survivals in spite of the fact that they had a relatively large breast cancer. And this to me explained it. So I had a patient and when the test first became commercially available, I'd seen a blurb about it. I called the company, I said, I wanna order this test for my patient. They said, we'd be glad. To, and I became the first doctor in New Jersey, if you will, to order the, this genetic uh, signature test. I explained to the patient what it was about and I didn't wanna order it I, I, unless she understood that, that the information you know, could affect the treatment and it might be different. The treatment recommendation might be different based on this test. So it could cause confusion and she understood what it could mean. And she said, absolutely, I wanna have the test. So I ordered it and it came back that she had a very low risk of relapse. Since then, it's it's apparent that life is different right. since the test became available. I think for all of us, not only is different, it's much better for the patient. Right. That's we all had those patients somewhere in our career before this, where we would have a tiny little tumor in an ER and PR positive cancer that looked like it was going to be nice and friendly. And then three years later, they end up with disease elsewhere and none of us could understand, wait, how did this happen? In the, by the same token, you'd have someone who had a six centimeter cancer that's the size almost of your fist and they never went on to develop metastatic disease. And it, it was so confusing in that time of how do you pick who needs what? Um, and it was such a great thing really in terms of making breast cancer individualized it was one of the first places where really we were individualizing medicine based on people's actual disease. This is really the best example of personalized medicine, looking at the actual genetic makeup of the cancer. It, to me, it's probably, I think if I look back over the last 50 years or so, I think it's, the, it's probably the most exciting test of any test that can be done um, on any type of, of patient. And that's what I wanna talk a little bit about, which is the future and where we're going from my perspective. So what does the future hold? What does the future look like? Well, we've already talked about the importance of some biomarkers, estrogen receptors, progesterone receptor, and the other one is called HER2 new receptors. Some institutions are doing total tumor testing. And now, why would you look at all the genes in the cancer? There are millions of genes in these cancers. The reason is, is that, that if you can identify uh, a way to stop the action of those genes or some of those genes, then you get not only a deeper understanding of the molecular makeup of the cancer, but you can also understand the role of those genes in terms of cancer development and progression. And in the case of, for instance, melanoma, a good example, you can block certain of those pathways in multiple areas and thereby control the development of the cancer. So biomarker testing for all cancers, especially breast cancer, is a very hot area. And as the years go by, and maybe months go by, 
we will identify other biomarkers other than the three that I talked about a minute ago uh, that will help us gain a deeper understanding of how to control those cancers. But breast cancer is probably the, the poster child for tumor marker directed therapy, both in a non-metastatic and metastatic setting. So that's an area of, of really intense research right now. And so we will know what those important genes are and how to control products of those genes that make the cancers grow, divide, et cetera. So it's one of the things I keep talking about with the triple negative group. They realize that they're in a much more difficult situation than the average breast cancer patient is. And what I've pointed out to the group is that initially you were either ER and PR positive or you were everything else. And then the HER2 directed therapy came into being and took a piece of those people who were not ERMPR positive out of the awful category and brought them into a more treatable category. And there are going to be more things that we find in the triple negative. It's just that we are going to need to keep chipping away and finding new markers and finding new drugs to target them. And slowly, we are going to continue to shrink the number of people that has no targeted therapy other than undirected chemotherapy. Do you have any insight into anything else that's coming in the Absolutely. So one of the things that you may read from time to time, it's called liquid biopsy. So what is a liquid biopsy? Basically, it's you, you take a sample of a person's blood, and it's, it's a promising technique that looks at free-floating uh, nucleic acid. In other words, byproducts of what the cancer cell is doing. And there's some very big companies, working with several other companies, to try to formulate a way to use this as a screening test. In other words, get a sample of your blood of a person's blood and be able to tell whether or not they have cancer and hopefully what type of cancer they may have. The problem with this is, is that the science is almost ahead of the diagnosis. Because if you got, let's say you had a little pinprick for your finger and you got a little bit of blood in a couple of hours, they were able to tell you the, the bad news is, is you have cancer. But let's say that cancer is very small and you can't find it. Yeah. What good is that information under those circumstances? Except well, you, stress and making you crazy. Exactly. So liquid biopsy has a lot of promise. Uh, it hasn't been marketed. Right. It, because we have um, to we have to make sure that our diagnosis and our treatment are on the same right. phase. But there's a huge amount of investment that's gone into this. So I really firmly believe we will have liquid biopsies. Uh, and that'll be part of your, you know, if you go to get a blood a blood test done for your blood sugar, you'll you'll be able to get a liquid biopsy and hopefully get to find that there's a cancer. But then, what do you do about it? That's sure. the second part of it. So that's an, a, a very interesting area. The other thing that I'm involved with is a vaccine to to prevent breast cancer. That's amazing. Um, wouldn't it, that it be? Is, wouldn't uh, that just be life changing? Uh, imagine if you could prevent the disease. Um, We're screening for breast cancer, and that's an imperfect science, unfortunately. As many women know, uh, especially women with dense breasts, it can be very difficult to identify the presence of a breast cancer, especially a small one. So we've gotten better at that. Uh, At the end of the day, the best way to treat breast cancer is not to get it at all and to prevent it. So prevention, healthier diet, avoiding alcohol, which has been shown to increase risk, avoiding weight gain. Uh, We know that there's a a direct correlation between breast cancer development 
and how a woman does if she has breast cancer and weight. So For those sure. are the types of things that we, we can do to try to prevent the disease. But at the end of the day, um, those are only so effective. What if I, we could give a person a vaccination, prevent her from getting breast cancer? That would be something- I just got chills. <laughs> so just so you know, and for full disclosure, I'm on the board of directors of a company that will be applying for FDA approval within the next few months with a study being funded by the uh, federal government. We've got a grant of $67 million um, to initiate a breast cancer vaccine trial that's going to be done at the Cleveland Clinic. We're very excited about it. It's been held up by COVID. As many people know, there are over 200,000 trials around the world that have been impacted, halted, delayed by COVID. It's, it's, it hopefully will be a game changer for, for the 250,000 women who will develop breast cancer this year in the United States. <laughs> I cannot imagine a better reason to need to find a new job than completely not needing radiation anymore. That would be the best possible scenario for realizing that I have to find a new job. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, that would be. It would be. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's say a few, a few prayers that this, this vaccine is effective. Thank you so much for sharing this all with us today. It's really been very enlightening. And I think a lot of people are really going to enjoy hearing the whole backstory of all of this. Thanks, Deb. And it, thank you for inviting me. And, and I'd be glad to answer any questions going forward. Just get in touch with me. And, and uh, it's always a pleasure to interact with you. What a great chat. I hope you guys enjoyed that today. If you have questions for either Dr. Baskies or myself, you can reach out on my Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD. I'll chat with you soon. Thanks for listening to Best Life After Cancer. Did you know you can get more information on my website, bestlifeaftercancer.com? There is also a Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD, where there is a group just for survivors. Here you are able to interact with me, ask questions, and get more help. I'd love to see you there. Have a great week, and I'll speak with you soon.